Will you guys please, for the reading of God's scripture, will you please just stand with me? This is something we do every week as, as uh, uh, out of reverence for the word of God. And most of you know we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's been super fun to kind of slow things down and to just look line by line at the words of Jesus at the Sermon on, at the, sermon on the Mount. Now, the thing that kind of strikes me as interesting, or one of the things that strikes me as interesting, is that Jesus, when he was preaching the sermon, he actually sat down on the mountain, as was customary for a rabbi giving a teaching, and everyone else, while he was teaching, was standing there's something to be said about the reverence and the power of God's word, and so we want to treat it with proper reverence. So thank you for standing with me. Let's uh, read this together all out loud. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> Finally a topic that isn't controversial, divorce. We've been a lot of these controversial topics lately. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks with great power. And we're here to listen to what you have to say, and we want to hear you out, and we also want to follow you faithfully. That's the goal is that we would follow you faithfully. And God, I just pray for anyone in the room who might be triggered by the statement we just read based on their past trauma or their childhood abuse or something that happened in their family of origin or maybe a messy breakup or messy divorce. God, we just, we just ask that you would empathize and sympathize with our weakness today, but that you would also just speak the truth in great power and in great love. So we need you, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, go ahead and grab a seat. So um, I just want to start off by saying you're welcome because I just gave you a great conversation starter for when you float the river later with your friends this afternoon. I just like, I just know this is going to be great. You grab a couple friends, your inflatable swan or whatever your floaty of choice is, a cooler full of LaCroix, and then just have a casual conversation about the biblical grounds for divorce in the Bible. Um, it's not exactly light reading, is it? Listen, the Sermon on the Mount was all Jesus' idea. So if we're having a, tr a tricky time or a hard time, problem with the taboo topics, I didn't pick them. He did. And um, we kind of get around a little bit about this, or at least we have been, because it's like one after the other after the other. But I want to remind you that it's actually very good. It's good that Jesus doesn't avoid our problems in life. What kind of savior, what kind of king would he be if he only handled the easy fixes? In reality, um, all of life falls under the scope of Jesus' vision for you to flourish. And remember, that's really uh, what we decided at the beginning of this, of this series was this message, this sermon is all about how you can truly, truly flourish. And so all of life is under that scope. He's not leaving anything out, and that includes even the breakdown in your marriage and in your singleness. Right? So this is not just about marriage and divorce, it's also about your singleness. So um, I've been around long enough to know that all of us have been impacted by divorce, some of us way more than others. And like we just read a minute ago, Jesus has a plan to make things right. That's what Jesus is in the business of, making things right, redeeming, bringing reconciliation. And he's also already given you the power by his spirit in order to live it out. So before we get in, though, I just want to give a couple disclaimers. I think these disclaimers are important because these are such big conversations. We can't possibly talk about everything in a 40-minute chat about divorce. So uh, number one, first sort of disclaimer is that I am a straight married man. And most of you already knew that. You know my wife, Grace. And um, I met Grace when I was 20. And at the time, she was dating a national champion in jiu-jitsu. And so even though I was really attracted to her from the outset, I kept my distance because that guy could have ended my life if he wanted to. And he also happened to be a really good guy. We're, we're still friends to this day, but I wasn't going to take my chances. Um, and so uh, finally, when things ended between them, I finally worked up the courage to ask Grace out. And, um, and I was like... It was like a like I was had that fear of rejection, guys. You know what I'm talking about when you ask a girl out. For the record, I had zero game 
in dating, and I still don't have any game. But I had a friend of mine who was like, dude, listen, man, like Grace is so far out of your league. Don't even try. Like it's just going to result in you being rejected and feeling really horrible about yourself. He felt that Grace was out of my league. And for the record, I think he was right about that. But because there's a God in heaven who loves me. Uh, Grace agreed, I think out of just sheer kindness, uh, she agreed to go on a first date. And uh, five months later, we were engaged. Five months after that, we were married. And notice I'm not, I'm, I'm like 20, 22 years old when we got married. And it's very important that I point out, I'm not telling you what her age is. She knows you guys are a smart group. You can do quick mental math. And I'm trying to stay married here. So I'm not going to, I was 22. Grace was some age. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so just put it out of your mind. So at 22, I am like naively thinking that I'm ready for the challenge of marriage. And I was totally wrong. Um, but Grace and I have been through a lot of life together. Um, there's many, many stories we could tell about our marriage relationship. And uh, we've been married 11 and a half years now. And Mary and Grace is still like the best thing that ever happened to me aside from meeting Jesus when I was 17. Literally, it is the, like not an exaggeration to say that she's the best part of my life. Now I tell you all of that to say this, I, I realize that I'm coming from an extremely fortunate position. I realize that my story is not many of your story. And my parents stayed married, they're still married, they've been married 40, almost 50 years now. And I'm in a great marriage. Grace is in a difficult marriage, but, but I'm in a really good one. And um, I've heard a thousand stories over the years, and I've walked with people through a lot of life, and um, I realize it's not lost on me that I, I am very grateful to the Lord and to Grace to have a spouse who's committed to me and who is just like far, like head and shoulders above me in terms of her Christian character. And because I know a lot of the stories in this room, um, I, I, I know that some of you are in a marriage like mine. I know others of you are in an unhealthy marriage. And I know that um, some of you might be divorced by no fault of your own. Others of you, it maybe was your fault or maybe it's not that simple. Uh, you may be single and frustrated for like the last two decades or you might be single and totally content. Whatever your situation, we want you to know on the onset that you're loved by God and you're, and you're loved by us. You don't have to clean yourself up before you belong here at Riverbend. It's just completely come as you are. And one of the important things to notice about the Sermon on the Mount, just on the whole, is the sermon is, uh, it presumes or it assumes Jesus knows that our lives are messy. He knows that, which is why he enters into all of these things. And so Jesus is speaking to us from the messiness of our life, and he intends to uh, show us what it is to walk in wisdom going forward. So this isn't about shame, about past mistakes, or you know things that you've done in your past. This is actually about where do we go from here, and how do we walk in holiness, and how do we live into Jesus' ethic for marriage, okay? Which leads me to my second disclaimer, which is I have a bias. I'm, I'm, I have an agenda, and, and my agenda is to clearly present the way of Jesus concerning uh, con, uh, way of Jesus concerning marriage. I want God's heart for marriage to be clear to you, and I also want to influence you uh, to follow Him. So those are my cards. I'm just like showing you my cards right on the offset. And I, the reason I say that is because I know there's thousands of perspectives about marriage and divorce out there, especially these last couple of decades. But for today, I'm not going to be referencing like the Defense of Marriage Act. I'm not going to be talking about Focus on the Family or Psychology Today or the Harvard Journal on Family Studies. We're not going to be talking rising divorce stats in America. We're not going to be doing any of that. All we're going to be talking about is what does Jesus, through the Bible, have to say about marriage and divorce, and how do we follow him faithfully, period. That's what we're talking about. How, what does Jesus, through the Bible, have to say about marriage and divorce, and how do we follow him faithfully? And if I do my job, uh, we're all going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. We're all going to feel challenged for a bit. Because Jesus doesn't back away or pull any punches in the sermon. He directly confronts our sin and our brokenness. 
For some of you, though, it might go a little bit beyond being uncomfortable because of your past, because of your childhood trauma, or because of a father wound who walked out, or because of a failed marriage, or whatever, fill in the blank. You're a complex person with your personality and your backstory and all of that. I can't possibly know exactly everything that you've gone through. So this very raw, honest talk may be more than uncomfortable. It might actually be triggering to you. And if that's the case, if I'm talking to you and you're kind of triggered by Jesus's words, my first thing that I would say is I'm sorry in advance because it's not actually my point uh, to offend or to hurt you. Uh, In fact, I've been um, praying all week long that the Lord would give me wisdom to know what to say and what not to say. Um, And it would be doing us a disservice. In fact, there's a lot of preachers and teachers out there who are purposefully inflammatory about some of these hard topics, which is, I don't think, fair to you. It, It does everyone a disservice because this is very close to the heart of God. The last thing you need is me being up here being offensive for no good reason. So, um... If I'm describing you, again, I'm praying for you that the Lord um, would just kind of keep you with me to the end of this message because I promise you that the way that Jesus leads us in this conversation, his vision leads to a super hope-filled picture of the future, and it's awesome. So it would be a shame if the guy, the pastor dude up here with zero game when it comes to dating, if I triggered you and you weren't able to hear the rest of the message. So Try and stay with me. This is super important. Okay, so um, with all of that, I know those were long disclaimers, but they're super important for today's talk. Okay, so with that, let's look at the message or let's look at the passage from Matthew chapter 5. Again, this is just two verses. And um, this is a wisdom teaching. So Jesus is saying a whole lot with very few words. It takes a few seconds to read. It takes tons of meditation and study to understand, and then it takes a lifetime to actually practice. So fortunately for us, uh, later in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus goes into greater detail on these exact words um, as he's being sort of confronted by and debating the religious elites. Now, you know if you've been following along in this series or you're just a student of the Bible, that Jesus had a contentious relationship with the Pharisees and the scribes. They were... um, So Jesus was having to sort of differentiate his message and his interpretation of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the Bible that we call the Old Testament. He had to differentiate his reading from the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's sort of what these um, couple of examples in Matthew chapter 5 are all about. And so at the time that Jesus gives this message, he's being threatened um, by the religious elites because they're being threatened by him. By Jesus' spiritual authority and by his message, um, he was um, subverting and kind of punk rock, um, and he wasn't necessarily going along with convention, but he was powerfully teaching the word of God. He had the spirit of God um, in him, and so, so they had to pay attention to him. So the Pharisees, there's many different run-ins that they have with Jesus over the course of the Gospels. And in Matthew chapter 19, they try to entrap him when it comes to this topic of divorce. So this is what they say. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it is not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, so it's the same sort of argument or the same point that he was making in the Sermon on the Mount. He's just giving us a fair amount more detail. So the simplest way to understand what Jesus is saying about divorce, there's a lot here. Um, The simplest way to understand what Jesus is saying about divorce is to look at it in these three ways. Number one, what does the Torah or the Old Testament say about divorce? How did the Pharisees misinterpret it? And how does Jesus reveal its true meaning? 
Okay, so that's kind of what we're doing when it comes to understanding the Bible stuff behind this conversation. So one of the first passages that people turn to, including the Pharisees, when it comes to divorce is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And that's kind of where the conversation starts, or at least that's how it was in Jesus' day. And it's on the screen behind me, and it says that if a man wants to divorce his wife, it cannot be for an unjust reason. It says that um, he has to give her a certificate of divorce, and then that woman is free to remarry. Notice it doesn't say anything about adultery, though. It doesn't say anything about adultery in, the, in a Deuteronomy passage. And I was wondering about this, and in my research I found out the reason why that is is because in the Torah, if you committed adultery, the punishment was death by stoning. So I'm not an expert, but my feeling is that if you're commit adultery and you, you, know, you have that punishment, the marriage is going to end at that point. There's not going to be any more marriage after that. So um, another thing that you might notice is that the majority of the scripture about divorce here in Deuteronomy and in the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the woman who's being rejected. The focus seems to be on the woman who's being rejected, which at first glance is not a good look. Um, but actually, his specific instructions about divorce in the Torah and with Jesus were all about protecting the wife's dignity and economic security in the event of divorce. So without a certificate of divorce and without proper cause, divorce in the ancient Hebrew world would be extremely unfair to women, and it would be a sentence to a life of complete poverty on the streets. That's just how the culture was set up. So the scripture is saying, men... Guys, it's up to you that if you are going to divorce your wife, you have to have proper cause and you have to make sure that you're setting her up financially for her life after you. So that's the emphasis or that's the focus of the Deuteronomy passage. Um, so the, ins the instructions in Deuteronomy are, so when you look at that carefully then, the instructions in Deuteronomy are not really about when divorce is tragically necessary or appropriate. It's actually about the equality of the wife and preserving her dignity and safety when divorce does tragically need to happen. So I know the Bible is not a sexist book. The message of the Bible is not sexist. It's really, it's too bad that people don't read it carefully enough to see that it's actually subverting the corrupt social norms of the ancient world, including things like sexism. And Jesus is the great champion of, of, of the value and the equality of women, which I'm excited about and I hope you are too. That's good news. And we still have a long ways to go. It's not just talk, but it's actually, there, there requires a lot of work. But the reality is, is that the Bible is not sexist and people use it to make sexist claims are misrepresenting the Bible. And it's also sad to me when people talk about divorce like it's the easy way out of a, of a challenging relationship. I think you can maybe say that if you're thinking in a very short-sighted way. But in the long run, it's just not the case. If you've walked with people through divorce or if you've experienced divorce yourself, you know Every time a married couple gets divorced, there are emotional and legal and financial and practical and spiritual consequences to that divorce. And that's not even to mention if there's kids or children involved in the equation, especially when there's kids involved in the equation, there is great consequences. So even like the cleanest divorce has significant hurt and suffering for all parties for years to come. And the Torah, what the Torah is doing is anticipating that suffering and making sure the wife doesn't get the short end of the stick. Is that making sense? This is not the wavelength the Pharisees were on at all. They had completely missed that point. And when they question Jesus about divorce, they say, then why did Moses command that we give, uh, that, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? That's uh, 19 verse 7. And this was the heart of their misinterpretation. They were conflating the fact that God gave specific instructions for divorce for God actually commanding divorce, which he wasn't doing at all. In a typical self-righteous fashion, which again, one of the critiques in the Sermon on the Mount that we have to hear is Jesus is coming against self-righteousness. The 
the religious pride of thinking we've got it all figured out when really our hearts are far from God. And in, in typical self-righteous fashion, the, the Pharisees were focused on the external rules of the Bible to the exclusion of the plot of the Bible, to the exclusion of the plot. So the certificate of divorce was actually the center or the focus of their argument or their interpretation, not actually God's heart for covenant faithfulness. And this is where they went wrong. And this is, again, the classic self-righteous pattern. The Pharisees were busy looking in the Torah for acceptable reasons to leave their marriage. They failed to appreciate the reality that God had not left theirs, even though he had plenty of cause. That's the message. That's the plot of the Torah. This attitude of self-righteousness kind of reminds me of the article that I read a couple of weeks ago about the release of Bill Cosby from jail. So apparently um, his conviction was overturned because he confessed to crimes after he was led to believe by the investigator that he had immunity or the statute of limitations had dried up or whatever. Um, now, I, I guess I have to, when I think about that, I, I think it's important and I understand that there are rules in place to protect defendants from wrongful convictions and I'm really glad that those protections are in place when people are actually innocent. But this does not seem like justice for Cosby's victims. Just because he had the like, money to, to, to spend whatever it takes and because his team was able to exploit a loophole, now a sexual predator is walking free and that's tragic, it's tragic. And that's not, that's how the Pharisees were guilty of looking at the Bible in that same way. Like, what loopholes can we exploit here? But that's not how the Torah works either. The Bible was not written like a law book that we can search for loopholes to get out of hard situations. The Torah was written to reveal God. He's a relational, promise-keeping, loyal, self-sacrificing God. And it calls us to a radical lifestyle of obedience obedience that reflects his character in the world and this is our job or our vocation as a bible student as a jesus follower it's to know him and to be like him as a part of our missional witness it's not the the we we're not meant to read the bible to look for loopholes to get out of hard situations it's instead to understand the revelation of who god truly is so this is how jesus responds to the pharisees he says have you guys even read the Bible? Which was like a huge jab because these were the scholars, the Pharisees, they knew it front and back and all of that, or at least they thought they did. And Jesus says, have you guys read the first page of it? That's literally what he's saying here. Have you even read your Bibles? At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, so um, Jesus is wisely moving the conversation, not to about the few rules in Deuteronomy, but the larger story and the actual plot of the Old Testament. Jesus is wisely teaching that if you want to talk about divorce, you need to first talk about the meaning of marriage. What is it? How do, where does it come from? And what is its purpose? So we live in a time and in a space that desperately needs to hear Holy Scripture's answer to that question. And just, um, just to make it really clear, according to Jesus, marriage is a one flesh until death do us part covenant between a husband and a wife. I'm going to be talking more about covenant here in a minute. Marriage comes from God. He's the origin, uh, the, uh, the creator, the originator of it. And marriage is uh, for friendship, for flourishing, the flourishing of creation. It's for sex and sexuality. It's for family. It's for becoming like Jesus. And it's pointing us as a signpost to the new creation. So these are, this is how Jesus wants us to see, see marriage. So we all know that marriage in our culture has been going through a pretty major redefinition in the last 15 years in our culture. Uh, but the issues that we have in the West about marriage are actually much deeper than just the marriage equality conversation. Of course, the marriage equality conversation is a part of it, but we actually have an issue that goes much deeper than that. And here's what it is. If you were born in the Western world, which I think is most of us, if not all of us, we were born into a 
culture of consumerism. A culture of consumerism. A whole life has, in our whole life, we are being sold a value proposition. We're, we're sold a value proposition. When it comes to the products we buy, the apps that we download, the places we eat, the banks that we deal with, the schools we attend, the services we purchase, we are deeply ingrained to look for the value. Is what I'm paying for this or putting into this worth what I'm getting out of it? Is it beneficial to me or am I coming out ahead or am I overpaying? That is the world in the air that we breathe. For example, yesterday morning, it's my day off, my family and I, we go out to breakfast. We go to our favorite spot in town, McKay Cottage. It's the best place for breakfast in, uh, in Bend. Definitely, definitely is my favorite spot. And we bumped into the Larson family, one of our favorite, some of our favorite people. And we had the greatest time uh, there. And it was 75 bucks for our family of four, plus a 25% tip because it's for our waiter, because it's tough to live in this town and to work in the service industry. And, uh, I've, and I feel great. I feel great about that value proposition. I feel great about that experience. It was amazing food. It was amazing service. My family had a great time. But I would feel robbed if I spent 75 bucks to take my family to Subway. It's just a different experience, right? And so our whole lives, we're ingrained to look for that value proposition when it comes to the things that we purchase. So consumerism is the air that we breathe. Now, we can have a conversation about the equity of that system in economics and in society, but consumerism... When consumerism colonizes my relationships, and specifically my relationship with my spouse, it becomes toxic and becomes dehumanizing. Marriage becomes nothing more than a contract. Two parties agree together on a working relationship as long as it's mutually beneficial. In the world of consumerism, that's what the marriage covenant becomes. It's reduced and flattened out to a contract. So that, plus our obsession with a very specific brand of romance, is another problem. If you don't think that consumerism has infiltrated romantic love, then you haven't been paying attention to the plot of your Disney movies. Um, it's just, it's just I've, I'm a dad, so I watch Disney movies all the time. Um, or we're just too desensitized to even notice, which kind of proves my point. The fairy tale romance fantasy brought to you by Disney is a consumeristic vision of falling in love. It just is. And it's not, by the way, it's not just Disney. It's like every love story from pop culture in the West for the last like 100 years or something like that. And in this conception, the reason why you fall in love and get married is so that you will be happy. Right now, happiness is a fine and great byproduct to a healthy marriage, but it's not the reason you get married, according to the Bible. So the reason why that vision, though, that conception of falling in love is such an intoxicating narrative is because it plays into and claims to satisfy our deep human longing to find fulfillment and acceptance and then sometimes salvation from a relationship. But it's a perversion of the gospel, really when you think about it, because your mythic soulmate is just another human who's just as broken and flawed and in need of saving as anyone else. So your fulfillment and your happiness is a crushing and unloving expectation for you to have on your spouse because he or she is just not built for it. The true gospel is that Jesus is the answer to your heart's deepest longing. And by trusting in him for salvation and for life in his kingdom, you will be fulfilled both now and, of course, in the age to come or especially even in the new creation. Listen, if I've lost you, just watch The Little Mermaid and then read your Bible. And I think you'll see what I mean. In fact, the first draft of this message had a whole analysis about The Little Mermaid, but it was 10,000 words. By the time I got done with it, I had to cut it in half. So that conversation kind of got the boot. But if you're interested in hearing my theories about Disney plot lines, I'm happy to chat with you about it. Again, I'm a father of a daughter. It's basically all I do. So, um, Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is such an incredible book, by the way, Sociologists argue 
that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that were historically covenantal, including marriage. So today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When they cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we cut our losses and we drop the relationship. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. And so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept increasingly foreign to us, and yet the Bible says that it is the essence of marriage. That is a really good point. In fact, this message has been brought to you by The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Literally everything good that I've said, it comes from him, and uh, it's a really, really great book. You should pick it up. So a marriage relationship built on a consumer contract and the fairy tale romance fantasy is doomed before it even starts. And that's what Jesus is sort of getting at. He's getting at we need to have the right idea about marriage before we can even talk about marriage. So we have to decouple our consumerism from our relationships and we have to live into the biblical reality of covenant instead. We have to decouple our relationships from consumerism and live into the biblical idea of covenant instead. So according to the Bible, marriage is a one flesh until death parts us covenant between a husband and wife. That's the Genesis 2 origin of marriage. And God created it for his glory and for his purpose. So it's sacred to God. And if you were here last week for our 50-minute talk on sex, um, (laughs) you may remember that anytime God partners with people, he makes a covenant with them first because God doesn't do intimacy without covenant faithfulness. He just doesn't do that, which is why sex outside of marriage is out of place. But when God invites us into a marriage relationship with our spouse, he wants it to resemble the relationship that he has with us, his covenant people. So my covenant with grace is a promise. It's a promise that I made on my wedding day to God, to her, to my community of family of friends, to be loyal and faithful to her and her only until death. There's no if clause. There's no out. And my commitment is my commitment even if she doesn't hold up her end of the covenant. That's what covenant in the Bible is all about. And so when my covenant is tested, which even the healthiest marriages are tested, when my covenant, marriage covenant is tested, there's no decision for me to make. I've already promised, November 6, 2009, I will remain loyal and faithful to grace until death parts us. We've already made that commitment to each other. So the reason this is so close to the heart of Jesus is because this is the exact story in the Bible that Jesus is going to the cross to fulfill. He's actually in the middle of finishing the story that has started, and this is why it's so important for him. And by being faithful to my covenant, I get to imitate God. And that's really why this is so close to the heart of God. So maybe the most jarring uh, picture of covenant, faithful in the, covenant faithfulness in the Bible comes from the book of Hosea the prophet. And if you're a student of the Bible, you're familiar with it. God speaks to Hosea, go get yourself a prostitute and covenant to be her husband. And Hosea's like, I think my Wi-Fi is kind of breaking up. Um, could you repeat that? Bad Zoom connection. But ultimately, you guys know the story, he obeys, and it unfolds in a kind of a predictable pattern until it doesn't. The predictable pattern is that she cheats on him. The unpredictable part of the pattern is that God instructs him to go find her, forgive her, and restore her to his house. And later, it's revealed that this is a prophetic picture of God, the faithful husband, And the people of God breaking their covenant with him and whoring themselves out to other God. In Hosea 2, God speaks about this, about the deep betrayal that he feels by his covenant people. And and he speaks about the hurt that his bride has caused him. And this is how he concludes. Therefore, I am now going to allure her, to romance her, to try and win her back. 
and I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant, there it is, for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that you may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. That is the heart of God for covenant faithfulness. That in spite of of infidelity God does not go back on his promise to be covenantly faithful to them so when the self-righteous religious leaders want to split hairs with Jesus about the conditions in which they can toss their wives out on the street he fires back at them have you guys even read it like have you ever even read the bible because you're completely missing the heart of it you're blind and you're deaf to God's patient, self-sacrificing love towards you. And you're completely missing the part, the chance, the great opportunity that you have to imitate God's love to your spouse and to the world. He's allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart. It's not what he wants. It's not his command. He wants covenant faithfulness because that's always what he does. So being a faithful covenant partner is the joy and the honor for those of us who are married. And whenever I get the chance to marry people, which I do often, and it's one of the greatest gifts of being a pastor. I just married James and, uh, James and Amy Stasko last week, and Brooke just married Christian and Katie last night, which is so cool, so beautiful. We do not marry people unless they understand that the vow to covenant faithfulness, what it represents and what it means. We just can't afford it. We don't want to do it because this is what the scripture talks about in terms of covenant faithfulness. So before I marry a couple, this is typically what I do. I meet with people for several different times and I'll meet with a couple and every single time I meet with them, I'll remind them about what we've been talking about. Covenant faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. And I exhort them to be ready to make their vow on their wedding day because that's when it really counts. And then there's a rehearsal typically the day before and we run through everything and I remind them again at the rehearsal, hey, by the way, you're gonna make a vow. Here's what a vow means. This is what a covenant is. And then the day of, I really just go after it. And I tell everybody, make sure everyone's clear what is happening here. God is challenging you or calling you to make a vow. And God always tells the truth. He doesn't make a promise and then decide to take it back. And he expects the same from us. And then right after that, I lead them directly into saying their vows. This is important because it's so close to the heart of God. And this is why in a couple of years when those couples go through their first round of challenges or trials or whatever, for whatever, for whatever reason, they're not making a decision about whether the relationship is still mutually beneficial. They're not looking at the value proposition. They've already promised to stay. And that's what the covenant represents. So the kicker is, that there actually is a value proposition by faith. There's a value proposition that can't be quantified by our systems in, in the West. By faith, when we stay faithful to our covenant, God is making us whole and free to truly love. And I have a friend who has lived this in a way that I can't even begin to understand and it's just absolutely incredible. Her name is Jan, and she's been a Jesus follower for decades, and she's been married to her husband, Jim, who's also a friend of mine, for decades as well. And Jan, the way that she walks and talks with Jesus is pretty much unlike anyone I've ever met. She's just so close with him. She's extraordinary. She radiates the Spirit of God. I, again, I can't even begin to describe her to you. But anyways, eight years ago, uh, she tells a story about her husband, Jim, not coming home from work for one reason or another. Next morning, she wakes up. He's still not there. Finds out after she calls the cops that he, along with her adult children, they find out that he's been busted in a prostitution sting. And this was the first evidence 
that Jan had that Jim had been living this double life. He had this whole other life that she knew nothing of, and he'd been keeping it a secret for their entire marriage. And so Jim gets released on bail, and he comes home super angry. He continues to lie, and he denies the charges, just makes up some sort of excuse like it's all a big misunderstanding. And so Jan has a choice in that moment. She can flip out on Jim and sort of beat the truth out of him, which I think is what most of us would have done. Or she could do what she did every morning, which was to spend time alone with Jesus before anything else. Again, I can't describe to you what happens next. Uh, I can't do it justice. But she describes about this really meaningful time she spent with Jesus that actual morning. And she describes God saying all kinds of different things to her. But what she describes is the distinct voice of Jesus asking her, Jan, will you be me to Jim? Will you be me to Jim? And without hesitating, literally without hesitating, she said, absolutely, yes. It's my honor to be you to Jim. And she immediately forgave him. And this was before Jim was even asking or seeking forgiveness. Meanwhile, at the same time, she doesn't know this, but Jim is having a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. He can't move or speak, and he's ultimately broken of all of his pride and all of his lying. He confesses to everything, not just the things that he was caught for, but the other things in his life. So super long story short, a few days after this happens, Jan is still kind of following up and asking questions. Okay, Jim, talk to me about this other life that you've been leading all these years that I know nothing of. And every time Jim tells a story about something that he had done, she forgives him for it. And then Jim has to go do something else. I can't remember what. I'm fuzzy on the details. But he leaves for a little bit, comes back. And this is the part of the story that Jim can't actually even tell without breaking down into tears. Because she had prepared his favorite meal. Every possible thing that he enjoyed, she made it for him and laid it out there on the table. She was sitting there waiting for him to come home so that they could enjoy eating this meal together. You guys, this is just an incredible example of covenant faithfulness. And it's the most, like, vivid example that I can give of self-sacrifice and covenant love that I know of. And Jim is actually living in it. So as we follow Jesus and as we stay together, the marriage covenant is the venue where we become free to truly love. Um, Tim, again, Tim Keller says, When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all of your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, is a lot like being loved by God. And it's what we need more than anything. And it liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. Amen. That's a good word. Okay, so we need to wrap this up. I've been going for a while now. Um, so how do we apply this? How do we walk into this? So the first thing is if you're single, um, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, great. Like a bunch of meaningful stuff that I don't get to experience at all. <laughs> well, the first thing I would say to that is this is, actually, this is actually good because you don't have to be married to be fully human. Jesus was single and celibate, full stop. That is like the, the, the point of um, the gospel is that Jesus is the true full human. He's the one who's truly thriving and he's celibate and he's single. Um, so if you feel like you have some longings unfulfilled, that's something we can certainly talk about. And God is empathizing with you, I believe. But the reality is that you do not have to be married to be fully human. David Bennett, um, he wrote a great book called A War of Loves, which I highly recommend you pick up. It's an autobiog autobiography about his life. He was a secular gay activist and he had a radical encounter with Jesus in a pub. And then he became a celibate gay Christian, still is, and he's a theologian and he's written some incredible work, incredible guy. And he describes his unique experience being a gay man 
who is practicing celibacy. And he says, today in our culture, the reason why celibacy is a fate worse than death is because it puts so much emphasis on sex, being our sexuality and romance as love, all of that stuff. What I'm choosing to do is to live into the future today. In the future, I will have complete unity and be married to Jesus. We are taught as Christians that we are future people, that we are eschatological people, that we live into the future today, that we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I live into that reality now. And so this is a, a beautiful thing. If you're single and you're celibate, you are fully devoted to that future vision of Jesus returning to claim his bride. So seek Jesus, pursue Jesus. That's the point of that. It's amazing. And also, don't idolize marriage, especially the fairy tale romance fantasy from Western fiction. Just don't idolize that. Um, instead, pursue Jesus as a matter of first importance. This is your calling. This is who you are. Number two, if you're single and you hope to be married, um, prepare. Prepare yourself today for that commitment you may make in the future. Um, if one day you make a covenant with another person, it's going to take every ounce of character and every ounce of faithfulness that you possess. I think it's actually kind of absurd that we spend thousands of hours dating and planning to be married uh, or planning to planning a wedding, but we spend under 10 hours typically in preparation for the actual life that follows the wedding day. And so I think the recommendation would be that you ask Jesus uh, to show you the character that he wants to form in you before you make your marriage vow. And this could be dealing with your past. It could be a mess, uh, like dealing with a messy breakup or a pattern of sin. I don't know. Again, you are a complex person, and you, this is intensely personal to who you are. So um, you have a story. You know what that is. But don't go at it alone. Learn to live into community and to have a covenant relationship with your sisters and your brothers. Lean on your peers. Lean on a pastor, on a mentor to help guide you through the process of character formation. And then uh, if you happen to be married, then remember your marriage vow. Remember your covenant. You made a promise to stay with your spouse in sickness and in health as long as you both shall live. So decouple your consumerism and your relationship with your spouse. Decouple consumerism from your relationship with your spouse. Instead, embrace your covenant and embrace your spouse as God's way of making you more like Jesus. This is one of the most important functions of marriage, which we didn't have time to talk about today. But um, a pastor I esteem super highly, he's actually the guy who married Grace and I, his name's Stan. He also married my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. And on their wedding day, I remember it vividly, verbatim, over 10 years later. Because as a part of their vows 10 years ago, he had Ryan and Christiana recite after him, I accept every part of you as God's way of perfecting virtue in me. I accept every part of you as God's way of perfecting virtue in me. Literally, I about hit the ground when I heard that because it's such a beautiful reminder that actually marriage is like the best kind of mirror back to me about the gaps in my discipleship to Jesus. Um, marriage functions like a mirror in that way. My character flaws might be mildly annoying to you, but they pose big problems to grace. And so we need to face them together. So rather than consumerism, I look at my marriage, among other things, as a crucible for character formation. And that's, in fact, what marriage is. It brings out all of my imperfections. I can see them more clearly because grace is right across the way, reminding me of what they are. And uh, so we get to actually work on our character formation gaps in our discipleship to Jesus. So um, here's what that means or what that looks like. I get to be Jesus or I get to be Christ to her. She, in turn, is um, showing me the love of Christ as well. So it's like the love of Jesus marked by radical truthfulness and radical acceptance. So Jesus never hides the truth, but he also accepts us in spite of all of our flaws and failings. He makes an unconditional commitment to us. And this is a beautiful container for your character formation. It strengthens me to own my gaps and to truly repent and to not stay in them, but to actually grow out of them. 
So this is an important function of marriage. And then the last thing that I'll say to you who are married, be Jesus to your spouse. Take a lesson from my friend Jan and take a lesson from Hosea, from the message of the Bible. Being uh, loyal to your covenant, by being loyal to your covenant, you get to imitate God to the world. It's a privilege, it's an honor that you get to do. So stop wondering if you have feelings of love towards your spouse, just act as if you do. Because actions of love lead to consistent feelings of love. That's actually something that's been proven um, in the world of, of psychology. That the more that we choose to love, the more that we actually uh, experience loving feelings. Now, I'm also aware that um, you may be in a toxic or an, an unhealthy marriage of some kind. And if that's you, I really just have one major call to action, and that is for you to pray. To pray. If you've been around Riverbend long, you know that that is who we, this is who we are. We are a praying church. We have a praying culture. Pray to God to soften your heart. No passive aggressive praying. <laughs> we don't, we're not about that here. Pray God that you would fix her and all the things that she's done wrong. No, 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 no. Pray for God to soften your heart. Also, pray for God to reveal his radical love and forgiveness to you. By the way, this just kind of works in broken relationships in general, not just marriage ones. Pray that God would reveal to you his radical love and forgiveness. Have him remind you of the many radical things that he's done to forgive you. And then pray for strength to remain faithful to your covenant. It actually doesn't have to do with the other person. It has to do with your promise before God. I could have quoted um, so many things from Tim Keller. <laughs> Again, when I cut my teaching in half last night, <laughs> I knew I had to keep this in here. I just wanna end with this quote. Tim Keller says, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. And that is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. Let's stand and let's pray together.